Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate ebooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum, create beautiful books. Today's episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is sponsored by the new fiction podcast, City of Ghosts. I've had the chance to preview these episodes, and I think that you guys would really like it. It's a supernatural neo-noir mystery set in New York City with corrupt politicians, a dogged female detective, and a whole lot of ghosts. Episodes one through four are available now. Subscribe now to get caught up and catch each episode as they drop. Can you hear me? It's 1999, New York City. Where am I? Who are you? Oh, shut up! Bridget Lundy Payne stars in a new supernatural neo-noir audio drama. The voices, they're back. City of Ghosts. I understand this is beyond your usual scope. So two deaths and an attempted third. Must mean we're on to something big. Men like them have fortresses built around them. What good does sticking your neck out do, especially in this city? Still, just be careful. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Do be well, Eleanor. Why do we say that? Have you ever been curious about where phrases like rule of thumb or paint the town red come from? Tune in to the new Why Do We Say That podcast to join a father and his teenage son as they look for the facts behind the phrases. Jump in on some good, clean fun for the pandemic times while learning more about our language and how we use it. Check out the Why Do We Say That podcast. We're here with Caitlin Ware, author of The Damage, which released on June 15th. And Caitlin has written a really edgy, propulsive read. It's all about a small town family dealing with the aftermath of a brutal rape of one of their family members. But one of the things that makes this so interesting is that the victim is male. And as soon as I read the summary, I thought, oh, well, this is different. So I'm, first of all, just was so entranced by the description because it tackles something that is important to me, which of course is like sexual assault and the aftermath and how it affects so many people, not just the victim. Then to kind of flip the script and have the victim be male 
I thought was like really pretty ingenious. So if you would like to talk a little bit about that book, The Damage, and why you decided to approach it the way you did. The first idea that I had was about a husband and wife, a problem that they were going to go through in terms of the wife realizing that her husband was going through a pretty negative change and was starting to feel vengeful about something. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to give him a younger sibling, but I don't want it to be a female. If I'm going to have a victim in the book, I want it to be male because I don't want to write female. And that was really how I started off with the very beginning of Nick's character. From there, I ended up deciding pretty cautiously, to be honest, to write about sexual assault. And just with each draft of the book, I would have someone else read it and be like, what do you think of this? And kind of talk to them about it. And with each draft, I decided, okay, like I'm going to keep going with this version of the story. But ultimately, it really came from a place of almost feeling a little bit tired of reading about female victims and just wanting it to be different. But then once I had done that, I realized I had set up this total need to talk about what Nick would be going through and maybe parts of it would be recognizable to victims of any gender, but some of it is kind of specific to male survivors or at least um, specific to like broad strokes, what researchers say male survivors go through it ended up being this really interesting, possibly important, or at least hopefully done in a way that isn't harmful um, discussion of what a young man might experience after a sexual assault. You mentioned that you had done some research. Many of the things that Nick goes through are very similar to what a female would go through. So, for example, uh, just, of course, the the feeling of being violated, Mm. but also that concern about, well, I went willingly to this man's house. We had drinks together. Does it look bad that I was out cruising? That, of course, is universal. and, And as we all know, is the first thing that comes up in female rig case. What were you wearing? Where were you? How much had you had to drink? At what point did you remove consent? And is that even plausible? The similarities are, are definitely there. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about your research and the similarities between a female survivor and then, of course, the differences between a female and a male survivor of sexual assault. So I completely agree with what you said about some of the big similarities. I think that anyone who engages the criminal justice process, whether they do it voluntarily looking for justice, or if it kind of happens without them even really almost consenting to the fact that there's now going to be a criminal procedure, you know, a lot of times people aren't really told what it's going to entail, how long it's going to take, what possible outcomes are. And in the case of this story, it really gets kicked off because Nick's friends call the police on their way to the hospital. And so he feels like he didn't even really decide to involve the police. Mm -hmm. It, It happened, they're here, and now he feels the need to deal with it. But also I think that no matter who you are, if you engage the criminal process, there's this a big part of what happens is your story just gets completely picked apart and almost removed from you in the sense that people are interviewing you. They really want to make sure that your statements are consistent. So you're almost getting cross-examined when you're getting interviewed, depending on how the interviewer handles the situation. Some do it differently, but 
it's kind of common at least for detectives or police officers, sheriffs, deputies, whoever's doing it in that jurisdiction to kind of really be needling almost the the survivor about what happened because they know that a defense attorney is going to do the same thing later on. Criminal procedures tend to kind of be a zero-sum game from the defense perspective. Not always, not every defense attorney, but I do think that that's a huge part of what happens. And so that part of the experience can be re-traumatizing and really brutal and unhelpful no matter who you are. So that's another thing that I think is really similar, regardless of your gender. But one thing that I kind of realized as I just read things over the years that I worked on the book and eventually started reading textbook almost about male survivors, how it impacts their view of themselves as men. And this is not universal at all, but A common thing that this textbook was talking about and that I read in other places is this idea that men in America and probably lots of other places too grow up with this really strong message about what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine. You're a winner. You end fights. You are sexually aggressive and sexually available always. You are kind of supposed to be physically dominant and being sexually victimized by someone is the antithesis of a lot of that messaging that men get. It also really impacts their views of themselves as men. And women definitely have their own things that they would struggle with. It's not exactly that because that's not the messaging that they're getting. And so Mm -hmm. that was something that I realized was kind of missing in the story that it would be really natural that Nick would probably struggle with that especially given how his brother was acting in the wake of the crime, trying to fix everything, really micromanaging him and breathing down his neck about what Nick wants and what he thinks Nick wants and not listening to him. And so Nick loses a lot of agency throughout the story. And some of it, I think, naturally is tied to his view of himself as a man. That's one of the, I think, biggest things that comes into it as far as the differences. I just very recently finished listening to um, Missoula by John Krakauer. The football team was basically uh, sexually assaulting people left and right, and they weren't getting reported or it was being brushed under the rug. One of their administrations even just referred to it as thuggery. One of the things that was really interesting to me uh, listening to that book, like it was very, very difficult to listen to because for one thing, they examined very carefully two or three different cases. One of them, the uh, assailant did end up serving a hard time and in another got off like scot-free. Yeah. And what you're talking about with the absolute picking apart of the story and everyone being asked for the most extreme details not only intimate details, but also did you ask before you changed positions? Did you consent to changing yes. positions? And like questions that are highly detailed about things that you may not be making a note of in the moment and in you know yeah. intense moments anyway. And I think for me, one of the things while reading your book that stood out was the fact that Nick, as I said before, is dealing with a lot of the same when it comes to similar reactions of how much of this is my fault and was I consenting to a point now with Nick it's a little different because he is 
assaulted. He's hit on the head for the crime actually commences. So he doesn't have to work quite so hard to establish himself as an unwilling participant. However, just the fact that he is male brings it back to for women, if they freeze and they're asked, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you fight back? You know, the answer is like, I'm paralyzed with fear. But for a man, like you were saying, you're supposed to fight back. Like fighting is your instinct. You know, why didn't that happen? Yeah, I kind of made a point because I was using the internet also the way that there would be a newspaper article published online and there's always a comment section. And those Mm. comment sections are just the worst place on the planet, basically. And I kind of felt like that was a really natural place for people to be almost kind of putting some of that toxic masculine ideas out there of like, is it even really believable that he was unconscious from being hit on the head? Do we even believe that part of it? He probably did consent to all of this and then he made up a story or maybe he was actually so drunk and embarrassed that he couldn't hold his liquor, like just kind of all of this trash that people in real life post on these stories. But in this case, they're posting it about a man and the different things that they would think about that. And also some comments about the fact that he's a gay man. Yeah. Um, all of that kind of coming out and being part of what Nick is dealing with, the anxiety and additional trauma around the event, knowing that people think that kind of stuff about him and are talking about it and wondering if it's going to impact the outcome of the case and does it even matter? It's impacting him right now. Right, right. I thought too, one of the things that really got my attention was the pattern for the assailant is still very similar because they talk about this man who has done this before, who is looking for younger men who may not necessarily be out Mm-hmm. And so he knows that if he can attack these people, the possibility of the crime actually being reported is lower. Of course, they have the toxic masculinity to deal with, but they may not also want to even be reporting, well, I was in this bar because we know it's yeah. a gay bar. The similarities between when rapists are on the hunt or kind of picking out someone they might be interested in using as a victim looking for someone that maybe is younger, a little more Mm -hmm. insecure, a little more naive. I thought it was interesting the way those elements uh, stay static. It felt like that was at least somewhat natural to do. Although I think that it's also possible that men who sexually assault other men, maybe there are some different characteristics for them. Mm -hmm. I think that they're also just not really talked about and researched as much, you know, but I did think that in some cases that I have read about, or I've, you know, read books where a man wrote an account after the fact, it did seem like those kinds of things were just, like you said, static, similar people who do this are doing it for a reason that doesn't really have anything to do with who you are, the victim. They're just picking you out thinking this is going to work for me to get away with this. Yeah. Easy prey. Yeah. Vellum. It just works. Best-selling indie author Alex Lydell, whose book Enemy Contact, an enemies to lovers romantic suspense, hit number 25 in the Amazon paid Kindle store, has this to say about Vellum. 
there are always a ton of hang-ups in the publishing process, from the printer running out of ink at just the wrong moment to Amazon rejecting margins. But Vellum has been one program I can depend on. It formats my manuscripts quickly, professionally, and most importantly, in a way that never gets rejected by any online retailers. Visit www.trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. That's trivellum.com forward slash pants. Vellum. It just works. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 50, PubSite gives you the tools to build, design, and update your website pain-free. Build your site with a 14-day free trial. PubSite is easy to use. You can set up a simple site within a couple of hours, and when you're ready, enhance with features like a blog, photo gallery, book tour calendar, mailing list sign-up, social media feeds, and more. Too busy to build your own site? Have a PubSite expert build your site for a small fee. PubSite is used by authors such as Tom Clancy, Robin Cook, and Janet Daly. Visit PubSite.com to get started now. Hidden Compass is an award-winning media company that's turning storytellers and explorers into heroes and championing a new age of discovery. Hidden Compass brings cinematic journalism to stories from around the globe that inspire courage and curiosity. Hidden Compass currently has a digital magazine, podcast, and a speaker series. In November, they're launching The Alliance, a modern exploration society, one that is global and inclusive. Think National Geographic, reimagined for 2021 and beyond. In an era of junk food media, Hidden Compass is a place for people who care about what they put in their minds, bringing you stories that nourish and challenge. Visit www.hiddencompass.net to learn more. One of the things that I liked so much about the book was showing those ripples throughout a group uh, setting, a family dynamic where everybody's affected by this because I don't think that we as a society, no matter what the gender of the victim is, I don't think that we really give enough weight to how this radiates outwardly from that person, how this one event impacts so many people. And one of the things in particular that was almost in another way, kind of a, another gender flip that I thought was really interesting. The older brother who uh, is married uh, to Julia is having a hard time thinking about Julia now because she used to be a defense yeah. lawyer and she in her past has defended rapists as a defense lawyer for the state. And it begins to kind of chip away for him at this trust that had been in this marriage. And now he has to think of his wife as someone that in the past has been on the side because the definition of her job of the assailant and they have um, multiple conversations where he's kind of 
picking at that and and, yeah. and asking himself, you know, who who is this person that is my wife? That if the straw were drawn differently, she would be defending the man who raped my little brother. And that's right. just one of the relationships that is negatively affected by this event. So if you could talk a little bit about how that just radiates out and affects so many aspects, of course, of the survivor's life, but then those around them. I love the the example that you picked out because I, I really liked writing that, I think because I was a defense attorney. And so I think that maybe even Tony's point of view is somewhat maybe a more critical side of myself looking at myself. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I agree with Julia that defense attorneys are completely constitutionally necessary. And so that was a really interesting thing to write. And it definitely, like you said, as Tony becomes more and more angry and dysfunctional about what has happened and what is continuing to happen as the process goes on, he feels like he can't talk to Julia because she's not going to get it because of her history. At the same time, Julia is feeling like Tony's being totally unreasonable and she can't share everything with him because he's in such an unreasonable place. And so their communication completely breaks down over the course of the book. And I think that you definitely see little snippets of how it impacts their kids, but I didn't focus on that too heavily. Also how it impacts the relationship between Nick and the friend he was with at the bar Mm -hmm. when he went home with the man. He feels like it had nothing to do with her, but she seems to feel guilty about it. And that just makes him feel tired. And like, it's worse that she's acting like she has anything to do with it. And it really just kind of their relationship falls apart. And maybe he does have some anger at her once he starts to really process it. And then at the same time, Nick and Tony have a father in common and they each have mothers and Julia has a mom. And so the extended family all become impacted. I think for me as a former attorney, most of what I did really wasn't adult criminal law. It was juvenile defense. And so that's just defending um, kids, mostly teenagers who were charged with crimes. And I also did a lot of child protection work. So that's cases where the state steps in to protect a child in a home. With those kinds of cases, everything that I worked on was impacting a family unit. That's kind of just how I've grown to see a single criminal act impact so many different people and how that family unit responds to the either the criminal act or maybe an allegation of child neglect or an allegation of child abuse whatever it is, it's how that family functions or doesn't function Mm -hmm. that can determine so much of how that case ends. Because even in juvenile cases, although sometimes we're looking at punishing a juvenile for specifically what they did or did not do during that moment of the alleged criminal act, a lot of it depends on their conduct after the fact. So even if they did something quite damaging, if they go through a whole year of therapy, they might end up not having a criminal record that's going to follow them into adulthood. Whereas if they do something really small, but then they're violating their terms of conditions of release for the next whole year, they might end up with something that's going to follow them because they just weren't doing what the court wanted them to do. And so I'm just really used to seeing things as 
How is the family handling the situation? How are they supporting each other? Or how are they falling apart? How are they negatively impacting each other? And what is that doing to what the process is going to look like as we go forward? Yes. And it has such a huge impact. I worked in a high school for 14 years. So I know that when you have situations like that, I don't think we give enough credit to children often about what they do and do not understand and what they can process or what they're capable of. But I also think at times it goes the other way where we, we forget that, you know, a 16, 17, 18 year old is is still a kid kid. and are like completely overwhelmed by so many things. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. And I think for me, at least coming from that background, even though Nick is a 20 year old man, I think of him still as being a kid in certain ways. Like like when I think about young men, I always think about not having your frontal lobes and what a difference yeah. that makes. The part of your brain that helps you say, pause, is this really a good idea? I'm yeah. having a really impulsive desire to do something. And in Nick's case, to me, what's being impacted by his not being fully developed as an adult is later in the book, he really struggles with self-harm and mm-hmm. just kind of like impulsive desires to cause harm to himself because of what's happened. And he's really not able to pause and stop himself. And I think that that's really realistic. And I saw that in young men, Oh, yeah. sadly, as in my job. Yeah. It's really interesting that you included that aspect, uh, especially of youth, because you're right. We aren't fully developed mentally uh, for a while, even though we are legally adults. I don't know that the brain can really uh, align with that moment of turning 18 and suddenly, no, you're good now. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. I agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think it's like 26 or maybe it's 24. I can't remember, but it's well into your twenties for most male brains, at least to finalize all of the structures of their brain. (laughs) Yes, it is. And I know that I personally, I tell people often that I don't feel Like I really knew who I was or what I wanted until I was probably 30. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's an interesting uh, kink that you threw there where the victim's also quite young and maybe in some ways not even fully capable of processing what has actually happened to them. Uh, Initially, Nick just keeps insisting, no, I'm fine. Like even the the morning after when people are in the hospital with him and his face is smashed and he's like, I'm fine. Yeah. And I think that's really common. I think that happens also for adults. Sometimes it's, it's partly, you know, the trauma of very, very slowly being able to understand almost, or at least acknowledge like what has just happened. Mm -hmm. But definitely, I think a huge part of it too, is that throughout the whole book and from that very first interaction, Tony is making his younger brother feel like a kid Yeah, the whole time they're interacting. And it's the last thing Nick actually wants. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course. You got a blurb from Stephen King. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. Thank you. That's a nice little feather in your cap. How did you go about making that happen? Honestly, I feel like I can't even take credit for it. My editor, I I don't know if she sent him a letter or just an email or how it happened, but I think it was my editor, Pam Dorman, who reached out to him. And what I kind of have heard through the grapevine after the fact from someone else is that he's really good to debut authors. He knows what it was like to be Mm -hmm. a total newbie in this like really scary 
book world and he knows how much a review from him means. Yep. And so I think that it was probably just an act of kindness and maybe, maybe the main connection too, because I was born here. I still live here. That might've been it too. But all I know is that it just was like the most exciting thing. So I actually just had a baby five weeks ago. Oh wow! And I think I was like, maybe I had her a matter of days after he gave the blurb and my husband and I were just like, the whole day that it had happened, we were like, you're going to just go into labor today out of excitement. Yeah. <laughs> it was gonna happen. But it didn't. It happened a few days later, but still, oh my I was just like, I was like over the moon. I couldn't, I genuinely love him so much. Yeah. And I have been reading his stuff and listening to his lectures and I love his books. I used to think he was too scary for me, mm-hmm. but in the last few years I started reading him and I was like, oh no, actually I love this. Yeah. I'm not even pregnant. And I think if Stephen King blurbed me, I'd go into labor. Right. <laughs> you would just like have a baby. Yeah. I would just have a baby. Well, congratulations. That's truly amazing. I agree. I've never had the opportunity to meet Stephen King, but I have heard that, that he is extremely kind, very generous to new authors, aware of his own position and status and how he can kind of confer that onto others. So that's super cool. Last thing, why don't you let my listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find the book, The Damage? I think that both my Instagram and Twitter handles are just my name, Caitlin Ware, which is C-A-I-T-L-I-N-W-A-H-R-E-R. My Facebook, I have a Facebook page that I neglect, but um, it does exist. And I try to post every now and then. And that is also just my name. I think you can buy the damage just about anywhere. A lot of our local bookstores in Maine have it. So definitely, if you love supporting your local bookstores, you can check IndieBound. It's also available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million and probably other places that I'm forgetting too. (laughs) Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. <laughs>